Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 122. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this episode on July 14th, Vive la France, 2023, in Austin, Texas. We are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism, or at least as little as we can manage. Okay, counting by timeline episodes, we've been in early New England for a long time. Leaving aside the Memorial Day and Independence Day sidebars, which, come to think of it, were also located in New England, something like 16 of the last 20 episodes either dealt with Puritan New England, Puritans in general, or stuff happening around the Puritans. In other words, most of my work and most of your listening for the first half of 2023 has been pretty heavy on theology, and almost entirely in the 1630s. We are still spinning around in the 1630s, insofar as there are two more colonies to establish before we can conclusively break free into the sunlit upland meadow of the 1640s. The first and the subject of this episode is the prelude to the founding of Maryland in 1634. The second is the founding of New Sweden along the banks of the Delaware River in 1638, which we'll get to soon enough. After that, unless my muse dictates otherwise, we will return to Virginia for Opakankana's third and final war on the English. We have, in fact, already touched upon Maryland's early days back in mid-April, episode 112, as Apple reckons it, and 115 if you listen on the website, that time Maryland and Virginia went to war. Obsessed as I am with chronology, I should have done this episode even before that one, and certainly before the episodes on Roger Williams, the Pequot War, and Anne Hutchinson, but I didn't have the books I wanted to do the job properly. As I said in that episode on the Maryland-Virginia conflict, which is actually still useful as a prerequisite for this one, there are hundreds if not thousands of books on both early Virginia and early Massachusetts, but not too much on Maryland. The really comprehensive book was published in 1933 for the 300th anniversary of the founding, the usefully titled The Founding of Maryland by Matthew Page Andrews. I ended up buying it from a used bookseller in the United Kingdom. My copy had been acquired by the Manchester England Central Library in 1934 and checked out a grand total of five times, the last being the 29th of July, 1961, precisely five months before I myself bounced from my mother's loins into this world. The other book that popped up in my early searching covers more than just Maryland. The Southern Colonies in the 17th Century by Princeton's Wesley Frank Craven. That book was published in 1949 by the Louisiana State University Press and the Littlefield Fund for Southern History of the University of Texas. I mentioned that detail only because the name Littlefield is ubiquitous in Austin, especially around the campus. Without George Littlefield's beneficence, neither UT Austin nor this podcast episode would be quite as impressive, each in its own way. 
Anyway, Craven's book came to me indirectly from the Library of California's Mission College, where it was checked out precisely twice in 1983 and again in 1988. It does not seem well-worn. Thank you, Mission College, for culling the herd. Maryland's founding is an afterthought in most surveys of American history. The exception, as always, is George Bancroft, who did, after all, write the most comprehensive survey of American history ever attempted, insofar as it covered 10 volumes and only reached 1789. Sounds a lot like this podcast. Bancroft wrote around 20 pages on the founding of Maryland, which was useful enough to get me through that episode back in April, but too abbreviated to deliver the random factoids and arcane detail to which our long-standing and attentive listeners have become accustomed. Clearly, one of the reasons why Maryland's founding does not feature so prominently in our history is that Maryland did not produce in its early days a lot of drama. There was no mass die-off. In fact, Marylanders were producing food surpluses after their first year and sold a load of it to New England. There were no early wars with the Indians. Even the Calvert-Claiborne controversy over Kent Island, you've listened to that episode by this point, was almost comical. At the risk of slighting the Calvert family, neither were their towering or self-promoting leaders whose names come down to us. There was no Winthrop, Williams, or Hutchinson. Nor is there a Smith, Rolf, Metoica, that would be Pocahontas, or Powhatan. Opakankanaw was still in the region, but too far south to make any direct trouble for Maryland. Maryland seems boring to historians, and apparently students with term papers to write, because everything went pretty darn well, at least in those founding years. Point is, Making a podcast about early Maryland is no mean feat. You will have to decide whether we pull it off. Maryland was, as a matter of both law and practice, a new form of colony for the English in today's United States. Even remotely attentive listeners know that the settlements in Virginia, at Plymouth, and in the Massachusetts Bay were almost organic, in the sense that entrepreneurs or refugees had the idea of going— and then worked out how best to pay for it and secure the necessary backing from the crown. Jamestown and its dependencies were an explicitly entrepreneurial project, even if there were evangelical and geopolitical purposes bolted on to attract the necessary capital and obtain the necessary permissions. The Pilgrim Fathers and the Puritans of the Bay were refugees, and they manufactured even the entrepreneurial objectives. All three had obtained royal charters, essentially corporate charters, which allowed them to operate without getting permission from the crown to do things in the ordinary course. These, along with Connecticut and Rhode Island, were the last such corporate colonies, and only Connecticut and Rhode Island would make it to the revolution with their original status intact. In 1624, after Opa devastating attack of March 22, 1622, James I yanked the Virginia Company's charter and declared Virginia to be a crown colony, directly administered by a royal governor appointed by the king. 
Henceforth, the crown colony model would spread, sometimes used at the founding and in other cases, such as Virginia, when the authorities in London thought that a colony was being mismanaged. By the time of the American Revolution, eight of the 13 colonies would be directly administered this way. Virginia, converted in 1624, New Hampshire, 1679, New York, 1685, Massachusetts, 1691, New Jersey, 1702, South Carolina, 1719, North Carolina, 1729, and Georgia, 1753. The other model pioneered with the establishment of Maryland was the proprietary colony known as a Palatinate. Hope I'm pronouncing that right. Proprietary colonies were neo-feudal in their governing philosophy. One dude, in the case of Maryland, the Baron Baltimore, was granted all the land, potentially millions of acres, and vast powers to set laws, wage wars, and most importantly, allocate the land among settlers. The basis for this power was an ancient English arrangement known as the Bishop of Durham Clause. It dated to the 11th century and was resurrected in the Baron Baltimore's grant. We shall return to it. The story of Maryland begins with George Calvert, who had become the first Baron Baltimore. By the way, since there are a confusing number of Calverts in our future, I'm going to refer to them by their first names. George, son of a Yorkshire squire, was born at the height of Elizabeth I's reign, probably about 1580. He would come of age in an England in transition, economically, religiously, and geopolitically. During George's boyhood and adolescence, the wool cloth trade that had sustained England for generations would decline dramatically, impoverishing many thousands of families in the villages and countryside. The true Protestant Reformation would begin to rise, challenging the top-down Reformation that had established the Church of England. Eventually, the Reformists would be known as Puritans, and the most extreme among them would be Brownists or Separatists. Finally, Elizabeth's brilliant Privy Council and other English leaders had come to realize that Protestant England needed to resist and contain Spain which was as close to a hegemonic power as Europe had seen in a long time. The West Country privateers, led by the Hawkins family and the young Francis Drake, boom, had pricked Philip II's great empire at its edges. And then suddenly Drake earned his knighthood by robbing the Spaniard blind on the west coast of the Americas and bringing the treasure safely home. After Drake's famous voyage, England could imagine herself as a great power to rival Spain and France. When young George was five, the English attempted their first settlement on the outer banks of North Carolina. When he was eight, England's great captains and a divine wind beat the dreaded Spanish Armada. By 1594, when George matriculated at Oxford, there was a growing sense that many of these problems economic weakness and unemployment, religious nonconformity, and the containment of Spain would be improved by establishing settlements in North America. A group of thought leaders, as we would say today, wrote in favor of colonization. 
You know their names already. Sir Walter Raleigh, the two Richard Hacklites, Sir Edwin Sands, Sir Ferdinando Gorges, and others. As George Calvert grew into a man he would have known of or even known all of these men. Anyway, the first attempt at settlement after the loss of the Roanoke Colony on the Outer Banks was in the territory of today's Canada in 1597. We told that story in episode 73, as Apple reckons it, The Road to Plymouth Part 1, The First Pilgrims, and included a lot more detail around the rapid change during George Calvert's youth. England was looking to the West. In 1601, young George, now roughly 21, embarked on a two-year grand tour of the great cities of Europe. There he met Robert Cecil, the son of William Cecil, Lord Burley, Elizabeth's most trusted advisors, and among other things, Lord Privy Seal, then one of the most powerful offices on the Privy Council. Burley had died two years before, and his son, Robert, already Secretary of State, had succeeded him as Lord Privy Seal in those last years of Elizabeth's reign. George apparently impressed Robert Cecil as a thoughtful, if young, analyst of international affairs and became Cecil's protege. Thereafter, George would advance as Cecil advanced. In 1608, Elizabeth's successor, James I, would promote Cecil to Lord High Treasurer, making him by far the most powerful minister of the realm, and George drafted along behind him. By 1611, George would be a member of Parliament and would continue to advance even after Robert Cecil's death in 1612. In 1619, George would become Secretary of State under James I. Now, Long-standing and attentive listeners will remember that in the 1620s, James and then his son Charles I began to claim powers for the crown, especially regarding the raising of revenue, that directly conflicted with the ancient prerogatives of Parliament. The country, or at least its elites, divided along parliamentarian and royalist lines. That division overlapped to a great degree with religious division, The Puritans tended to be parliamentarians, and the old-school Anglicans and the increasingly accepted Catholics were royalists. George had hitched his wagon to the crown and would be definitively of the royalist faction. In addition to the obvious careerist considerations, there were Catholics in the Calvert family, and George himself would come out of the closet, as it were, and admit conversion to Catholicism in 1625. Notwithstanding, George was of generous temperament and extremely diplomatic. As Secretary of State, he had the difficult job of communicating the Crown's position to Parliament under very trying political circumstances. He seems to have done it without enraging the ever more passionate parliamentarians, which was no mean feat. We covered the political crisis of the 1620s with our customary obsessiveness over two episodes— The Rise of the Puritans, Parts 1 and 2. It all ties together. As he rose, George extended his interest in foreign affairs to the settlement of the New World, for which he would become an important advocate in the Royalist faction. In 1609, he invested in the Virginia Company of London and became the Crown's representative on its council. That put him into business with leaders of the Parliament faction, 
and Puritans, or at least sympathizers with Puritans. In 1621, one year after the founding of Plymouth, George joined the Council for New England, which put him in close association with Sir Ferdinando Gorges. There is some evidence that George played a role in securing permission for the Pilgrim Fathers, the Separatists of Leiden, to emigrate to Virginia, permission that had been repeatedly denied until George became Secretary of State. In his first week in office in February 1619, George had written Sir Dudley Carleton in the Netherlands, inquiring into the possibility of Walloons in French of, quote, the Reformed religion, emigrating to North America. Long-standing and attentive listeners know that the Walloons, also refugees of a sort, ended up going to New Netherland. But we have that bit of evidence that George was interested in recruiting Protestant dissidents for the New World. It would have been strange, Matthew Page Andrews says inconceivable, but he's prone to such leaps, if the sudden granting of permission to the pilgrims had happened independently of George Calvert's appointment and influence. If so, George Calvert's influence on American history extends beyond the colony he would directly found. In 1624, James ordered his Secretary of State to dissolve the Virginia Company and install a royal governor, Sir Francis Wyatt. Wyatt had been in Virginia since 1621, sailing there with his cousin, Henry Fleet, who will emerge as an important figure in Maryland's founding. Wyatt had rallied the colonists after the sky fell on March 22, 1622. In early 1625, George came out of the papist closet and practiced Catholicism openly. This required him to resign from all his royal offices, although James and then his son kept him on the Privy Council and rewarded him for his years of service by creating a new peerage in Ireland. George became the first Baron Baltimore. George had already bought land in the New World, in Newfoundland. Now let's go to Wesley Frank Craven's account. Quote, Of the early proprietary undertakings, Calvert's estate in Newfoundland ranks among the more significant. It was purchased in 1620 from Sir William Vaughan, who had received it from a London and Bristol company of adventurers, which for several years after 1610 had sought to promote English settlement in the island with a view to control of the fishing. The grant lay in the extreme southeastern part of the island. Since the land was held nominally by grant of the company and the company was in decline, Calvert felt the need of a more secure title and more ample definition of his authority. Fortunately, he was in a position to do something about it, being a man of influence that carried high into the English government. He secured a royal patent in 1623, enlarging his grant and erecting it into the province of Avalon, a name borrowed from the traditional birthplace of Christianity in England. His desire, of course, was the desire of any adventurer as secure a title and as unqualified a power for direction of the investment as could be had. Just like venture capitalists today, it must be said. The solution of that problem in the case of a group of adventurers joined in a corporation like the Virginia Company had been a grant expressed in terms of a corporate monopoly. 
A comparable grant to an individual, however, presented a somewhat different legal problem. Lawyers then as now were bound in some measure to the use of conventional forms of conveyance, and it is doubtful that they could have found any other form for conveying to an individual so extensive a grant of land and authority than that of a feudal charter. Feudalism, it is true, was declining as a force in English life, and its survivals were rapidly becoming archaic. But among the last things to reflect a gradual change of the sort involved are the forms and usages of the law. And so the Avalon patent was drawn in the form of a feudal charter. Back to me. This brings us to the aforementioned Bishop of Durham Clause, which George worked into his charter for Avalon. The Encyclopedia of North Carolina describes it, quote, In the 11th century, the crown erected the bishopric of Durham into a county palatine and invested it with extraordinary, almost regal powers because of the bishopric's proximity to the untamed and often turbulent region bordering Scotland. Although in theory subject to the central authority, the Palatinate had its own judicial system, mint, powers of legislation, and other trappings of sovereignty. Back to me, here's how Craven describes its effect. Quote, Where border problems were troublesome, as they certainly were on the edge of New France, by the way, where distance caused the king's authority to shade into relative insignificance, the solution was to leave some one lord in control with power that was in itself sufficient to meet the need. It was often said of the bishopric of Durham, what the king has without, the bishop has within. And whatever the accuracy of that description, it unquestionably stated correctly enough what Calvert desired in Newfoundland. The high point of the bishop's authority had been reached in the 14th and 15th centuries. Improved agencies of the modern state had brought thereafter a marked decline in his independent jurisdiction. But what was outworn in England might well serve the purpose on the new and even more distant frontier of America. Once again, back to me. This was an important moment in the history of colonial America, for Calvert's Bishop of Durham Clause would make its way into the founding charters of the subsequent proprietary colonies, which is why it is described so usefully in the Encyclopedia of North Carolina. And Calvert, nobody's fool, had it drafted in the most expansive possible terms. He would exercise the power of, quote, any Bishop of Durham, which meant that his powers would reflect those of the most powerful such bishops in the last 600 years. He was, in the extent of his authority, the King of Avalon. The Avalon project would fail catastrophically. George spent a considerable part of his fortune building granaries and other storehouses, and for his own residence, perhaps the largest house then in British North America. 20th century archaeological work has uncovered, quote, the locations and designs of many original structures, including the mansion house, forge, brewery and bakehouse, stores, wells, seawalls, and a sea-flushed privy, uncovered an impressive stretch of cobblestone road, and unearthed more than 
two million 17th century artifacts. Calvert visited in the summer of 1627 and then returned the following year with 40 new settlers and his family, with the exception of his son, Cecil, named after George's benefactor, who was charged with overseeing his father's estates in England and Ireland. The winter of 1628-29 would be brutal, and by the summer of 1629, George threw in the towel on Avalon. He sent his family to Virginia. On August 19th, still in Avalon, he sent King Charles I a letter with a sad tale, quote, Your Majesty may please to understand that I have found by too dear bought experience that from the middlest of October to the middlest of May, there is a sad fair of winter upon all this land, both sea and land so frozen for the greater part of the time as they are not penetrable, no plant or vegetable thing appearing out of the earth until about the beginning of May, nor fish in the sea, besides the air so intolerable cold as it is hardly to be endured. By means whereof and much salt meat, my house hath been a hospital all this winter, of a hundred persons, fifty sick at a time, myself being one, and nine or ten of them died. Interjection. Unpleasant as that must have been, it was still not a terrible dying time, given the experience of Plymouth, more than 900 miles to the southwest as the super crow flies. Back to Calvert's letter. My inclination carrying me naturally to this kind of work, and not knowing how better to employ the poor remainder of my days, that with other good subjects to further, the best I may, the enlarging of your majesty's empire in this part of the world, I am determined to commit this place to fishermen that are able to encounter storms and hard weather, and to remove myself with some forty persons to your majesty's dominion, Virginia, where, if your majesty will please to grant me a precinct of land with such privileges as the king, your father, my gracious master, was pleased to grant me here, I shall endeavor, to the utmost of my power, to deserve it, and pray for your majesty's long and happy reign. Back to me. There it is, then. George Calvert's request for a proprietary grant to establish a palatinate on the Chesapeake, the first step toward the founding of Maryland. By October 1629, George had joined his family in Virginia. The response of the Virginians was mixed. The governor at the time, Sir John Harvey, was a staunch royalist, and he no doubt regarded Lord Baltimore as extremely influential with the king who'd appointed him, Charles I. Not surprisingly, Governor Harvey welcomed George. But there was also a group in Virginia associated with the parliamentarians, some of whom would eject Harvey from his position a few years later and pack him off to England. They were not at all interested in a royalist noble with aspirations to carve off part of their colony as, potentially, a refuge for Catholics. When George explored the possibility of locating his future palatinate south of the settlements on the James in today's North Carolina, Many of the old settlers objected. 
The Virginians put George to the test, asking that he swear an oath of allegiance to his majesty, easy enough for a royalist, and that he swear an oath of supremacy, meaning to the Church of England, which he could not do. Both James and Charles had excused George from that oath, which suggests, by the way, that even before George's conversion, James knew that he was a closeted papist. Anyway, not being able to satisfy the Virginians oath-wise, George went back to England in the spring of 1630, perhaps passing the Winthrop fleet on the way to Massachusetts. There he went to work securing royal support for a new proprietary colony in the fairer climes of the Chesapeake. He proposed that it be located north of the settled portion of Virginia, instead of south of it, and Charles I agreed. George had lawyers prepare the charter for the new Palatinate, of which more in a moment, and presented it to Charles I with the name left blank. The king supposedly exclaimed, let us give it a name in honor of the queen. What do you think of Mariana? The queen being Henrietta Maria, the daughter of France's great king, Henry IV. Lord Baltimore pointed out that a Jesuit by the name of Mariana had written a treatise against monarchy, whereupon the king proposed Terra Maria, which, Englished appropriately, translates to Mary Land. George died in the spring of 1632, perhaps from long-term consequences of the winter in Newfoundland, before the charter could pass through seal, meaning get all the sign-offs necessary before it would be ready for the royal John Hancock, to butcher a metaphor. His eldest son, Cecil, became the new Baron Baltimore, and he inherited his father's estates, including the new proprietary colony of Mary Land, and its charter. Futile in its origins as it may have been, the charter of Mary Land had some curiously modern elements and it would serve as a template for subsequent proprietary colonies in English North America. So a quick look at its essential features is a good way to wrap up the episode. The preamble's worth reading in full so you get a sense of the document and its tone and language. Its tone is very much like other documents of that period, many of which we have quoted on this podcast. Candidly, I can't get enough of it. Quote, Whereas, in our well-beloved and right trusty subject, Cecilius Calvert, Baron of Baltimore, in our kingdom of Ireland, son and heir of George Calvert, knight, late Baron of Baltimore, in our said kingdom of Ireland, treading in the steps of his father, being animated with a laudable and pious zeal for extending the Christian religion and also the territories of our empire, hath humbly besought leave of us that he may transport by his own industry and expense a numerous colony of the English nation to a certain region, here and after described, in a county hitherto uncultivated, in the parts of America and partly occupied by savages having no knowledge of the divine being, and that all that region, with some certain privileges and jurisdiction appertaining unto the wholesome government and the state of his colony and region aforesaid, may by our royal highness be given, granted, and confirmed unto him and his heirs. Back to me. Perhaps the most interesting thing about this 
is that a notionally Protestant king, head of the Church of England and defender of the faith, charged a Catholic noble with the extension of the Christian religion. This is the origin of the idea that Maryland was the Catholic colony, as even I learned in school. But as we shall see, that's a misnomer. Yes, the Lord Proprietor was Catholic and he would have vast powers, but Cecil would turn out to be tolerant of all versions of Christianity. More on that in the future. Article 3 of the Charter described the boundaries of the new colony, which extended north to the 40th parallel. Draw a line from the north side of Philadelphia to Tom's River, New Jersey, and you get the idea. And south to the south bank of the Potomac, all the way west to, quote, the first fountain of that river. Extend the line east to the Atlantic from the southern bank at the mouth of the Potomac, and you get to the eastern shore. There's all sorts of historical argument over the location of that first fountain to the west, but the wording of the charter does account for the goofy border between Maryland and Virginia, which does not follow the usual American custom of running down the center of the relevant river. See, for example, the Sabine between Texas and Louisiana, or any of the states across the Mississippi from each other. Article 4 grants rights for fishing of every kind of fish, as well as whales, sturgeons, and other royal fish, and the establishment of churches. Article 4 also includes the famous Bishop of Durham Clause to include ample rights, jurisdictions, privileges, prerogatives, royalties, liberties, immunities, and royal rights and temporal franchises whatsoever, as well by sea as by land, within the region, islands, islets, and limits aforesaid to be had, exercised, used, and enjoyed as any bishop of Durham within the bishopric or county palatine of Durham in our kingdom of England ever heretofore hath had, held, used, or enjoyed, or of right could or ought to have, hold, use, or enjoy. I mean, who wouldn't want a bishop of Durham claws, even for their own quarter acre. Our home is our castle, right, men? Article 5 sets forth the crown's rights in rent, the traditional fifth part of all gold and silver ore that might be produced in the Palatinate. There never was any in Maryland. And annually, two Indian arrows of these parts to be delivered at the said Castle of Windsor every year on Tuesday in Easter week. Regarding those arrowheads, I found a footnote in an article published by the Swanee Review in 1908, the Maryland Charter and the Early Explorations of that province by Bernard C. Steiner. Apparently, a historian named Hall, no first name given, had found, quote, Extant receipts for arrowheads from 1633 to 1750, signed by the governor or constable of Windsor Castle, or by someone as his representative in the king's name, save during the protectorate. The arrows were usually delivered by the hands of a servant or messenger, but on April 16, 1661, Cecilius presented them in person. If there are any British historians who have listened this far, 
It would be great to know whether Windsor Castle still has all those Maryland arrowheads. Bonus factoid for devoted listeners. My great-grandfather, also John Bell Henneman, was the editor of the Swanee Review at the time and is no doubt responsible for the publication of Steiner's paper. Ripples in time, etc. and so forth. Article 6 really irritated the Virginians, so a dramatic reading is a must. Quote, Now, that the aforesaid region, thus by us granted and described, may be eminently distinguished above all other regions of that territory and decorated with more ample titles, know ye that we, of our more especial grace, certain knowledge, and mere motion, have thought fit that the said region and islands be erected into a province as out of the plenitude of our royal power and prerogative, we do, for our heirs and successors, erect and incorporate the same into a province and nominate the same Maryland, by which name it shall from henceforth be called. Back to me. In other words, Charles was saying, or somebody sucking up to Charles was saying, that the province named after his wife was eminently distinguished above the now royal province named after Elizabeth I. Other provisions of the charter reflected some combination of George's skillful negotiation and the king's desire to favor Maryland. If confronted with pirates and ravagers, or rebellion, sudden tumult, or sedition, the proprietor had the power to raise armies and navies in defense of the colony or its sea lanes and pursue enemies even beyond its boundary. He could enact laws subject to the assent of the freemen. And if there wasn't time to get that assent, he could do it anyway, as long as the penalty wasn't death, the chopping off of a member, presumably any member, or the confiscation of property. He could lease or sell his land according to the English laws of conveyance. And perhaps best of all, Maryland was not, as Virginia was, restricted to trade with England. It could sell to any other country not at war with England, as long as the goods were transshipped through an English port on the way. No additional taxes would be imposed. The Virginians lodged objections on June 20th, 1632, just as the Maryland Charter passed through seals. They were of three categories. First, there were legal objections. The Maryland grant fell within the original grant to the Virginia Company of London. Blah, blah, blah. That was a loser because the London Company had been dissolved. Another was that the Bishop of Durham Clause was ambiguous because no particular bishop had been named. There were others, all of which were ignored. Second, there were objections labeled inconveniences, mostly a pack of undifferentiated anxieties over the vast powers of the Lord Proprietor. If Cecil brought over the wrong people or didn't police them properly or started unnecessary wars, this would be bad for Virginia. True enough, but the king didn't care. The third class of objections comprised a series of claims that the charter abridged the rights of particular individual Virginians. No doubt Thomas Claiborne, who would 
be a thorn in Cecil's paw for another 25 years was behind that. Nobody seems to have cared about that either. There you have it. The legal founding of the proprietary colony of Maryland. Cecil Calvert, the second Lord Baltimore, was now the largest single landowner in English North America. He was devoted to his father's dream. And within 18 months, the Ark and the Dove would sail for the Chesapeake. That is the story for next time. Thank you again for listening to the History of the Americans podcast. If you like what you hear and listen on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star review. I love getting emails from you guys. Please keep them coming. You can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. You can buy the books I mentioned through the links in the episode notes on the website, and follow me on Twitter to stay up to date and sample my musings on mostly history-related topics. Until next time.